Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we are here with Darren Carey. He is with the Dayton Capital Partners Group in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and we'd love to just kick this off with a story. Darren, could you please tell us about one of the craziest real estate stories or transactions you have ever faced? Oh, there's so many crazy ones. It's You want a nice, easy, simple one or just the total insanity? Total insanity. Total insanity. Um, <laughs> all right, so how about a hoarder house? Oh, yeah, yes. I love those. So we found a property that actually my property manager sent it to me. The lady's daughter had called six different real estate agents trying to get the property listed. And as soon as the agents saw the property, they refused to list it No, because it was that bad. So the sixth agent also happened to be my property manager and they told them just call, call me. Hmm. So we, of course, being the investor, we went and looked at it. And when we opened the door, you could not step into the door without stepping onto stuff. So in order to get past that, I literally had to crawl up to over this mound of stuff up to the ceiling. There was about four feet between the mound of stuff and the ceiling that I could crawl through to get in and look through the rest of the house. So we found out later that the lady's sister was living next door and she'd been getting her water, water from water jugs from next door. So we found like literally a washer and dryer box that we, from putting appliances into a new property, we took those over and literally filled those up just with milk jugs. Mm -hmm. um, brought in took five and a half, 20 yard dumpsters just to get the stuff out of there before we even started demo. Damn. You know, and it's funny, we found, found the refrigerator. Of course, you never want to open the refrigerator, right? Mm -hmm. Found, found the refrigerator. Rookie mistake opening the fridge, that's for sure. Right. So we touched <laughs> the refrigerator and the door literally fell off because the hinges were rusted through. Oh, God. And what was the smell like? There was there was no <laughs> smell at all. Oh, okay. It's, we what? found like cans of tuna on top of the refrigerator that rattled when you shook them. Oh, wow. Because they were dried out. Um, as we got it got it out, we started you know testing systems and things like that. We called the water department to turn the water on. They did not have a record of the count existing at all. So this lady had lived there for nearly 20 years without water service. What? Yeah, it was kind of crazy. Um, there was a hole in a roof that they had kind of patched. And as we dug down to the bottom, we found, you know, books and papers like that that were literally composted. I was about to say, what was they using a chamber pot or something? Like, what was their use? Uh, like, what was their bathroom if they had no water for twenty years? That's crazy. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, they could get to a toilet in there. Or she used the water jugs to flush that, or if she walked next door to her sister's house, we're not sure. But she lived and slept there in the house. So that one was kind of crazy. Yeah, you know, we cleaned it up. We found some interesting no stuff as we cleaned it out. You know, I found some silver coins and things like that. But a bunch of the things that would have been really cool, like the grandfather clock and stuff like that, there was so much water damage, you just couldn't do anything with them. Hmm. But we did get the house. We did get the house. We got it all cleaned out, got all the demo done. And by that time, I was you know, hitting the point, and we'll go back to that later, is I had eight different rehabs going on at the same time in eight different directions. Hmm. And this was one of the furthest ones out. So I was like, all right, I got to slow down. 
I'm taking the two furthest houses and I'm selling them as is and then sold them mm-hmm. to other investors. And he finished it off and, you know, made some good money at it and it was all good. But that one was just, you know, a little bit nuts. How'd you work out a purchase price on that one? Uh, basically, because there was Medicaid involved on it, we got it for roughly what the mortgage balance was and the back taxes. And we had to do some extra paperwork and whatever. But considering no agent would list it for any price, it was pretty easy just to say, hey, we'll pay off the mortgage and we'll call it done. Hmm. Uh, Medicaid never, never even argued. All we did is send, by the way, here's pictures of the house. You want it? <laughs> yeah, we, we took it down to the city for board of revisions complaint. And uh, sorry, that was a different house, different hoarder house. But we took the board of revisions complaint to get taxes lowered. Literally made one of the board members turn green when he saw the pictures. Oh, wow. It was bad. <laughs> you don't even, you don't even have to pay taxes on this house. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was pretty bad, but oh, I know it worked out. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did it. We need people like you to renovate these homes and make them available for people, especially with the housing shortage. Yeah, it's, it really helps. And actually, we, there's a really nice lady I ended up moving in there. It was glad that it was a ranch and a slab and some of the things we did because she was a little bit older. So we'd mm-hmm. actually set things up for someone who you know didn't want stairs. And so the lady who ended up buying the house from the investor I sold it to has really appreciated some of the things that we had done for the property and getting that ready for somebody to move in. Yeah, how awesome. So that being said, take us into a bit about who you are, your beginnings, so the audience listening can kind of understand where, where your start came from. All right. So mine's, I don't know if it's unusual or not, but I read my first real estate book back when I was about 18, 19 years old when I was going to college. Thought that would be cool to do someday, but never really did anything with it. Um, it wasn't until I'd been in the military for probably 12, 13 years where I finally kind of came back around to it, started looking again. That's when I realized that, you know, your military retirement really isn't all that much. And it was not really mm-hmm. something I wanted to live on. And so I started looking at real estate investing just as a landlord, just as a way to bring in, you know, a little extra income once I finally got around to retiring after 20 years. And that's all I was looking at. I was like, here, I can go take some money. I'll put a down payment on a property or rent it. Um, and I kind of found out at that point that real estate agents are not necessarily investors and they look at things differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a mistake. I also made, you know, several other mistakes. Like I bought properties back where I was from, not where I was nearby. So I couldn't have that reach out and touch. And I didn't have a network or a team built out that way. So while my real estate agent was really a really super nice guy, he just didn't understand investing. And I didn't, and I was so new enough that I didn't, I didn't know what he didn't know. Mm-hmm. So that was kind totally. of crazy. So I bought, you know, those first three, four properties like that, small multis, Managed to lose money on every single one of them. Oh, man. But I learned a lot from those mistakes. So I got through those first few, lost money on those. The next batch, I lost money on most of those, but not all. Got better as we Mm -hmm. went along. And started stumbling into some of the other things you can do with real estate. You know, the landlording was just one aspect of it. I realized that, oh, wait, if I buy something that needs a bunch of work, I can get the work done. You know, maybe build a little equity, stretch some of that capital out a little further rather than trying to come up with a 20% down payment every time that you need to buy a property. So we learned that. So learned about more about the rehabbing, then stumbled into wholesaling entirely by accident. 
uh, found out that was another good avenue and just and focused on those things. Um, yeah. 08 was painful. I can imagine. Um, so I'm curious, Darren, you mentioned that you lost money. Like, I mean, it sounds like you lost money on your first five, six, possibly more deals. Eight, eight of the um, first 10 lost money. Eight of the first eight 10. The first 10. So obviously that is a tremendous challenge to overcome. Like, what did you do? What kept you going as you continued to lose money? Where was the light at the end of the tunnel, um, so to speak? Well, I knew other people out there making money at it. So I just kind of, I looked in the mirror and realized, okay, what am I, what am I doing wrong? what what am i screwing up it's you know was it the house was it the deal was it my execution of the deal and really what it came down to is like one of the very important lessons i learned on one of those first three houses is when the seller tells you that it's been a very low maintenance house for the entire 20 years that he's owned it that means the house mm -hmm. needs everything mm -hmm. yeah that means he hasn't <laughs> done anything for 20 years right. <laughs> but i was the young new kid i had no idea i didn't know that and my real estate agent was an, an agent, not an investor. So he didn't know that. So he didn't know to tell me. And so I ended up overpaying for those properties because I was looking for, because I was military and moving around, I was looking for things that were going to be low maintenance, kind of a little bit easier. And unfortunately that led me into the properties that had had low maintenance for long periods of time and just needed everything. Mm -hmm. totally. So as we figured that out and got better, um, actually I started going to the real estate investor associations after that, the local ones and started learning a lot more from other people and learning like, you know, how clueless I was when I started. Cause you know, two books from Barnes and Noble wasn't really much of an education to start with. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And so uh, what I'm hearing from you is eight out of 10 unsuccessful. One mental strategy, one mindset strategy used was fixating on people who were doing what you wanted to do and were successful. And so that's, that's super good. Were there any other mindset strategies that you had that led you through that? I mean, eight out of 10 failures, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. So in the military, after you do anything major, you do what's called a lessons learned. Mm -hmm. So you go back. And so I started taking those, that mil those military things I'd learned and applying to what I was doing in real estate. Went, looked, I went and looked back at the deal and says, okay, what went right? What went wrong? What could I have done better? And what did I learn from it so I can apply and do that better on the next deal. So it really became a very reiterative process of, okay, what went right? Oh, this went right. What went wrong? All these things went wrong. How do I do it better next time? Could I have predicted some of these problems? Clearly, if somebody hasn't done maintenance on a property for 20 years, I should expect a lot of maintenance. You know, start identifying that as, okay, we've learned that one, we've learned that one, we've learned that one. Unfortunately for me, I learned a lot of them on my own doing it the hard way because I didn't even know like, you know, investor trainings or real estate investor associations. I didn't know they existed. So I was kind of, you know, you, you, I was stuck with Barnes and Noble, you know, Amazon mm -hmm. didn't exist yet, let alone podcasts, you know, so I was learning it the hard way. But the only thing I had was I knew there were some guys that I talked to in the past that were retired and their retirement income was coming from the real estate they owned. Hmm. So I was focused like, okay, I know these guys did it and they're just, you know, some good old country boys that, you know, mm -hmm. nothing special. It's like, okay, well, if they can do it, I can do this. I just got to figure out what that path is for me to get there. Totally. 
And so really keeping your eye on these guys was what allowed you, because it doesn't seem like there was any lack of commitment. It's like you committed that you were going to figure this out. And none of those challenges deviated your mindset away from maybe this isn't the right path for me. Yeah, there was there was never a doubt that real estate worked. There, that was that part was never a question. So for me, it was the question of why isn't it working for me? What am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. And as I figured that out, started doing more and more things right. You know, things got better. You know, those first mm-hmm. ten deals, I lost money on eight of them. The next ten, I lost money on four. It means I made money on six. Mm-hmm. The next 30, I made money on all of those. Mm-hmm. And then I had a loser. Mm-hmm. 30, well, in well, 30 in a row is pretty good. Yeah. You know, um, definitely no complaints there. You know, so, so it's, it's a matter of that learning process. So I had to go through, you know, call it 15 out of 20 properties to kind of learn the ropes or learn how to do it. And then it was started working. So now it works, it works really well. Yeah. Um, I love that you mentioned like uh, basically doing a debrief essentially of all your deals and you do a deep dive analysis. Why did it work? Why didn't it work? What did I do wrong? What did I do right? Um, and it obviously your mindset, you focus inwardly when you have a problem like, okay, so how can I solve this problem? So I was just curious, um, how did you develop that mindset? Was that instilled to you through the military? Is that something you've carried throughout your life or just kind of give me an idea, a glimpse into why that you you looked inward for your problems? Um, the way I grew up, it was always, you generally figured things out for yourself. You worked, you know, it was a, call it a hobby farm. So for lack of, it wasn't like a real farm, but everybody, you know, if you needed a roof, everybody got together and you put on a roof. You didn't call a roofer. Mm-hmm. So it was very much of, you did everything you could yourself and you figured out how to make things work. So that was just kind of natural for me going into it. And then going in the military, it was that just kind of reinforced that same mindset. You know, here's what we're going to do, figure out the path. And if this one doesn't work, you choose a different one because that's your end goal. You know, the goal was to have monthly income coming in every month. The vehicle was real estate. Now, how do I put the two together to make that work? Why isn't my vehicle running the way it's supposed to be running? Hmm. Yeah. Similar, and, similar concept, a commitment to the end goal and then everything else is what flexes. Yeah. And I had to do a lot of it inwardly because initially I didn't have that support network. I didn't have people I knew. I didn't have anyone I could call or talk to or bounce ideas off of. And mm-hmm. now if I run into a problem I haven't seen before, you know, I've got a roll of, you know, a figurative Rolodex of people I can mm-hmm. call and say, mm-hmm. hey, have you seen this problem before? Mm-hmm. Hey, well, how did you fix that? Mm-hmm. You know, same thing. You know, people call me with that. It's like, hey, we ran into this foundation issue. How do we fix that? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, you do this, 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 and this. Yeah. Like, that's the concept of knowing who, not how to do something, right? So you know who to call right. when you have a problem and they know how to fix it and they can tell you, right? Um, that's brilliant. So, I mean, we went through a lot of the challenges that you saw early on. Um, and then you, you mentioned that you hit a 30 streak in a row. Um, like, from that point, how did scaling work? Um, how did you scale your business upward from there? Um, actually I did way too much of it on my own. So we got up to the point where right before 08, I had 84 doors, wow. which considering I had started in 02 with my first door, that's six years. You know, that, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, Cause I lost really money good. and had to go backwards on a few of those. But when 08 hit, even though 
most of us saw that coming as far as it was going to be a dip, it was going to happen and all that stuff. You know, we were all right about that. But where I was extremely wrong was how bad it was going to be and how long it was going to last. You know, I figured it's going to dip, it's going to drop a little bit, you know, six, eight, nine months, we'll be back to chugging along, everything will be good. Because I didn't have that experience level to look back more than those few years that I'd been in the business. And when 08 hit, you know, if you remember back then, everything was, hey, maximize your ROI, leverage as much as you can, high debt, high cash on cash returns, and me not knowing better any better, I followed that formula. Well, when 08 hit, I mean, everything crashed and imploded. You know, I've still got, you know, scars from that because I tried struggling through for the next few years to the point where in 2012, I finally had to file bankruptcy because there was just no way out. Mm. Because all that debt, all that leverage on there just weighing down and there was just no way to get rid of it. There was no way out. So literally in 2012, I had to start over again from zero. And so what did I do in 12? I went back to that military training, that lessons learned. It's like, okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? Well, wrong was leverage everything to the hilt. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, how do I fix that? How do I do better going forward? So we went forward there and we built a very solid base of, you know, properties with lots of equity, low leverage, low interest rates. Um, my cash on re cash returns a lot lower than it could be. But on the other hand, if there's another crash, I'll be just fine. Mm -hmm. You know, if things dip. If I have a vacancy, I don't have to stress out it, stress over it because, oh, that mortgage payment. Yeah, I got a mortgage payment that's kind of small. Mm -hmm. And I got lots of reserves now. Back in 08, I didn't have, I had reserves, but after six, eight months, they were gone. Mm -hmm. So six or eight months, I mean, there's a lot of people that advise people that six or eight months is plenty. Now that you've been through that sort of downturn, what would you think is, is an appropriate level of reserves? It, it depends on where you are leveraged. If you're highly leveraged, you need, I would put at least 12 to 18 months because mm -hmm. if you hit that downturn, so we also had, during that downturn, we also had several major employers in the area shut down and move. Some shut down entirely. GM shut down. That, there goes some of my tenants. Okay, now all of a sudden the prices went down. I can't take the properties that used to have equity. Now they don't have any equity. Now they're upside down. I can't sell them. I can't borrow against them, but I got to turn this unit. So you get into that catch 22. Well, wait, I need money to do this. I can't have money. I don't have equity. And that's where everything kind of imploded. So that because I was high leverage, the amount of reserves I have wasn't adequate for that kind of scenario. You know, now I have yeah. reserves. And I have a lot more reserves than that, but proportionally my reserves are a lot higher now because my monthly debt and obligations are much, much lower than they were then. Totally. And so just to define this for the audience, when you say highly leveraged, will you kind of define that as far as, you know, are you thinking of that as a percentage of like loan to value? How are yeah. you thinking about your leverage? Um, I was looking at loan to value. So... You know, 80, 90%, I see people doing that all the time now. It makes me twitch. Um, hmm. As I saw the recession coming up, I was figuring, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm 70, 75%. No worries. Everything drops 10, 15%. I'm still fine. Except things drop 50 and 60 and 70%. Mm -hmm. So you've got to balance that out. If, you know, right now, if everything drops by 20 or 30%, 
I, I just I don't care. I'll just go buy more houses. Back mm-hmm. then, everything dropped by 20, 30 percent, even based on the leverage I had. I was kind of stuck. I could sell a house, break even, pay off the mortgage without a tenant. You don't have cash flow. You still have that mortgage debt to pay. So you were you kind of I was I'd kind of backed myself up into a corner. The only way to that method would succeed is if the market kept increasing. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it didn't, it, you know, it imploded and it imploded on a lot of people. Totally. Yeah. And I just came in the game right after that implosion. So I was very fortunate with timing, but it's just so good to hear because there's a lot of people like me that either are younger or are getting in the game later that they're listening to the same things people are saying. Take on as much debt as you possibly can, leverage, mm-hmm. and it's scary. Yeah. What what happens when you know your major employer in the area shuts down and all of a sudden your tenants can't pay? Mm-hmm. You know, I see people that struggle because they have to have the collect the rent on the first of the month before they make their mortgage payment before it's due before it's late on the fifteenth. Okay. That's wrong. You need to, have, you should not be in that position. You should be able to collect your rent. You, I've already paid my mortgages for the first of July. The few I have, I've already paid them. You know, they're set up on auto pay. They just go. I'm not worried about collecting the rent. Back in 08, I was in that boat where I had some reserves, but if all my rent didn't come in, I was going to be in trouble. And some of my extra reserves were all on credit cards. The excess reserves that I had that I wasn't using. Guess what else they did in 08? They shut down everybody's credit lines. Mm-hmm. So I thought I had, you know, hey, I've got, you know, 30,000 in reserves because I got these, you know, credit lines on my credit cards. And all of a sudden they say, hey, by the way, um, yeah, we're cutting your credit card limit down to your balance. Mm-hmm. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, Many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Such Yeah, such a great thing to think about. Just like how, you know, re- reconsidering how secure are things like your equity lines of credit, your credit cards, et cetera, you know, and maybe limiting your reserves to what you currently have cash in the bank. Yeah. Um, I knew guys back then that started tapping out their credit lines, all their cash advances, just because they were afraid the credit line would get cut. And they felt it was better to pay the interest and have the money in the bank where they could access, access it if they needed it than it was to let it be at the whims of whatever bank they had a credit card from. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another point too might be making sure that your equity line isn't callable. You know, I, I've heard of people that had callable equity lines, so they pulled the money out and then they called and they, could, they couldn't pay it. Yep. And they lost a lot. Actually, I know a guy that just had that just happen this past month. Oh, geez. $100,000 equity line. He had 60000 against it. And they said, hey, by the way, um, you have till the end of the month to pay that off. Oof. Yeah, I was about to say, I've, I've been reading articles that they're starting to reduce lines of credit and they're starting to do that right now. Um, so not necessarily an echo of 2008, but I mean, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And the thing about it, how does that impact you? Mm-hmm. You know, in his case, you know, it was easy enough for him. You know, he, he just took and refied the property. It wasn't a big deal. He had the credit and the cat, you know, cash flow, everything else to do that. But, you know, somebody doesn't always have that option, especially if you get to the point where if you're highly leveraged, your debt to income ratio goes out of whack. And all of a sudden, you know, the banks won't touch you. Mm-hmm. Now you're limited to your DSCR and Burr type loans, which well weren't available in 08. Mm. But those have a higher interest rate. And as the markets change, you're going to see the terms on those change. So you can't assume those terms will be the same today as they are six months from now, just like they weren't the same as they were six months ago. Mm-hmm. 100%. Take us, take us into the bankruptcy. Take us into the emotions. I mean, you present so even keel, so calm, analytical focus, which is just such a great disposition to have for business. But surely going through a bankruptcy had to have been, uh, have some emotions and things. What was it like to go through? You know, how'd you keep yourself balanced? So hindsight, um, the logical side, I should have filed bankruptcy about two years sooner than I did. But I was doing everything, you know, that whole, the honor, the integrity of meeting your obligations, doing what you did. I was doing everything I possibly could to pay back everything that I had borrowed and get everything squared away and doing everything I'd signed up to do. Um, In 2012, one of the banks had gotten a judgment and they reached into my checking account and pulled out all the money that was in there. And all of a sudden I had three weeks where I still had to buy groceries for the kids. Oh no. So, you know, fortunately, you know, garage sale took care of that. But that was the sign was, all right, well, this has got to end. I can't, they can't, I can't let them do that again next month. So that's forced me into filing. And honestly, filing, it, I mean, it, it messed me up for a while. It really did. Mm. I, mean, I really didn't do much for about two years after that. You know, I kind of stuck my tail between my legs. You know, I did the lessons learned and looked at it and just kind of moped and felt sorry for myself for a while. And you know, I took that time. You know, I did manage to pay off. I paid off all the private lenders I had. So even though I had filed bankruptcy and they were included in it, all the private lenders got paid back in full. So we took care of that. Um, credit card companies, not so much. But I took that time to kind of refocus. You know, probably that first year really was just feeling sorry for myself. I really didn't do much. Didn't even do much studying, reading, or anything else like that. And just kind of moped, so to speak. Um, and then kind of started revering it's looking at, okay, time to, you know, time to dig out of your hole here, you know, go face the world and look at it. Go, okay. What did I do? Right. What did I do wrong? How do I not do that again? Well, very clearly the high leverage was a very large factor. Um, that was, yeah, pretty much leverage was the whole factor. You know, yeah, there were some mistakes in there, real estate mistakes in there, but they could have been overcome had I not been over leveraged. 
So it's a matter of, okay, so I've got a bankruptcy in my record. Banks are, you know, I'm untouchable. So that forces me to be very creative. You know, up until that point, I thought being creative was getting a seller second for 10%, so your down payment was half. <laughs> okay. So it really forced me to be creative. It also forced me to look at other opportunities because up until then, I'd really focused on being just a landlord is all about cash flow. And one of the things, because of that focus, I was very restricted in how much I could do because I was always running out of capital. I was like, I don't have enough money for down payment. I need to do this. I can't refi yet because there's not enough equity. And so I was always having to slow down. So at that point, I'd come across, you know, people that were talking about, you know, flipping houses. And I started looking like, well, how do you flip a house? It's like, oh, it's just, you know, buy it, fix it, and sell it instead of refinancing it. Oh, okay, well, we can do that. And started, you started, you know, looking at how to do that. And because I was so broke, I did a lot of the work myself. I knew how to do it. You know, I grew up out in the country. Mm -hmm. Did everything ourselves. Okay. So those first properties, you know, we're in there, you know, dusty and dirty and covered in paint and doing as much as we can because every buck I saved on the rehab was a buck I could put in my pocket. Now I've got my, you know, my wife is in there doing that with me at the same time. You know, she's really good at demo and paint and electric and all mm -hmm. that other kind of stuff. Doesn't like to touch the plumbing. You know, and we pushed it that way. As we got further along, had a little more capital going, you know, we started hiring out a little more and more of that stuff so we could increase the volume and do more. But it really became that, okay, got to find a deal. Find a deal, go marketing, go marketing. Um, I could wholesale, you know, I could buy a property and sell it wholesale. And then if I had enough, had enough money, I could go get the money to rehab and flip one. So we did both of those in tandem, wholesale and flip, wholesale, flip, wholesale, flip. Then all of a sudden I had enough where I could keep one. So I managed to keep another rental property. And this one we kept free and clear this time. Mm. And we just started going through that cycle and start building it up, building it up. And at one point, like I mentioned earlier, we got to the point where we had eight rehabs going on, eight different directions from our house. And some of them were 35, 40 minutes away because that was where we found the deal. And we'd been working... 12, 14, 16 hour days for two, two and a half, three years at that point. It's like, all right, we got to slow this down a little bit. This is getting crazy. You know, we're burning ourselves out. You know, a good dinner was a $5 subway. <laughs> you know, so we started looking like, all right, let's sl slow down some of these projects. You know, we sold off those that were the furthest distance from us to give us a little bit of a time back. But we started shifting away from that mode of trading the dollars for the, the hours for the dollars and started becoming more investors say, okay, how can we invest in this? That's when I started doing a little bit of private lending for some other investors, you know, letting them out there do the work. Um, like the one I mentioned, the hoarder house, I sold that on payments to the guy. Hmm. You know, so we did it that way. So I funded that part of it for him and then kept it growing from that aspect of start, starting to shrink down the number of rehabs we're doing to a point where now we just do a, and I just finished one. I'm just closing on it on Tuesday. For the sale and start focusing on less on the dollars you know hours for dollars but how can i get a better return on the time invested as opposed to just a, a the equivalent of a wage even though i was self-employed and start focusing on that how can i leverage the skills that i have and the knowledge i have and that kind of led me into that private lending space such a great transition because essentially 
you, like, I mean, several of my mentors talk about it's way better to be the bank than to be anything else. Mm -hmm. That's why they have the big buildings. And then that's why, I mean, they're not doing any of most part, the, the real work on the properties. So you get all your time back and you get all these, these huge returns, let everybody else kind of struggle through. Um, so it's super cool that you made that transition. I have a, a unique question. The, Go ahead. Well, before you shift questions, there, the good thing about it is because I've been there, I've done the demos, the rehabs, been covered in paint. Mm -hmm. You know, as I'm lending these guys, I can help them through that process. Totally. I know what the hurdles are when they're doing that initial purchase and the scope of work, I can help them through the scope of work, make sure, Hey, you got the right numbers on here. You're doing the right things. You're doing the right level of rehab, you know, to help them succeed in the process. Cause I mean, honestly, I'm in, I'm in this as a lender cause I just want to collect some interest, which gives me a great return on my time effort, time expended, but I want them to make the bulk of the money cause they're out there doing all the work. Totally. I just want to make sure I get paid back. Exactly. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Plus, I mean, like you said, you can help them, number one. Number two, you know if it's a good deal or not. So you know if your money is going to return or if they if they fail because it's just too hard of a job, you could take over and still make money on the deal. Um, yeah, super killer. I have like a, kind of an off-the-cuff question because I have so many people that I talk to that don't get started because fear of failure. And one of the biggest fears I think people have is like losing it all. And so if you... Let's do like a would you rather question. Would you rather A, never start and not face the bankruptcy or would you rather do it all over again, face the bankruptcy and end up where you are today? I, I would do it all over again if I, it's just because had I never started, I would have never ended up where I am today. You know, I'd be the just another retired military guy that works for a government contractor, going to the base, working a job, doing 60, 70 hours a week that you don't really like. You know, now I still may do 60, 70 hours a week, but at least I like it. Yeah. You know, I'm enjoying it. It's it's a lot of fun what we do. You know, it's fun seeing other people succeed mm -hmm. you know, and helping them along in their journey. You know, however, I'd try to do a little bit smarter this time, thus, you know, having to start over after bankruptcy, you know, position yourself so you don't go there again. Um, the one thing that you can do differently now that I wasn't aware of is this, there's a lot of support networks out there, just like, you know, podcasts and bigger pockets and websites and local real estate investor associations. Um, and there's meetups and all kinds of places where you meet other real estate investors and learn from the mistakes they've made, you know, try to avoid some of those yourself. Oh, you're going to make some of yourself because human nature, you're going to do it anyway, because it'll be different for you. Totally. But if you can avoid some of those big ones, it's time well spent. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, I'm curious, Darren, as you transitioned from being an investor yourself to a hard money lender, how did your role as an underwriter change? Hmm. Um, well, initially, as I started doing it, it was more just as a, I was doing a little private lending just for mm -hmm. me. And then I was doing, because I had more people that, than I had money, I started doing like the traditional mortgage broker kind of a mm -hmm. deal. And I wasn't the underwriter. Okay. So other people for the brokering, others, the other companies, they're doing the underwriting and approving the deal. But I watched what they did and I learned from what they were doing. Then I balanced that off with my experience and deals they wouldn't do that I knew were still good deals because mm -hmm. I knew what I was doing. I would do as the private lender. And we kept it growing that way. 
um, gradually other people started seeing what we were doing and I had people with IRAs and 401ks started reaching out to me and saying, hey, I've got this money sitting in an IRA. Can you get it out there for me into a loan? Because they didn't want to deal with that front end. Is it a good deal? What's the scope of work? Dealing with the paperwork and vetting the borrower and the everything else. And so I started, rather than brokering for companies, I started doing the deals for other people. And then I gradually shifted that to point where I don't even do the deals for other people. I just close on all the deals and I just simply sell them the notes on the backside hmm. so they can collect the interest. But I'm doing all that front end work. I take care of all the servicing so they can be you know, very much passive. All they have to do is say, oh, yeah, I like this one over here and I want to put 50K on it. And boom, they get that. They start collecting interest and it's very simple for them. And so that model's turned out to be kind of where I've kind of grown or developed into based on, you know, my experience coming up through the hard way, you know, getting the scars, school of hard knocks and everything else, building that skill set and that experience to having other people trust me enough that they will buy notes that I've originated because I say they're a good note. Yeah, that's fantastic. 100%. Um, so you had mentioned on our, our before call interview um, a strategy that you do. Um, so it's kind of like wholesaling as well as hard money lending. Can we kind of get into that? Because you mentioned you were kind of double dipping, and I just think it's a tremendous strategy, and I'd I just love to hear a little bit more about it. All right. So there's – and I, I didn't realize you were going to be as enthused about that one as mm -hmm. what you put it out there is – you know, as a lender, I understand what wholesaling is because I've, you know, I've wholesaled properties. I still wholesale properties. So as a lender, I can fund, I can do transactional funding for a wholesaler who wants to buy it, you know, buy it in the morning, sell it in the afternoon, piece of cake. But because I under, understand wholesaling, that end buyer doesn't have to be a cash buyer. I can do the loan for that end buyer. Hmm. So even though it's a wholesale deal coming in, even if they're signing a contract, so what? I can still fund the deal. Not a big deal. As long as I have a clear path of, I know where it started and where it's coming through. So I can do transactional funding for someone who needs to do double close. I can also fund that end buyer, but I also get people that are calling me with properties they want to sell. Hey, do you want to buy this property? And it's, it's a heavy rehab. I don't want to deal with a heavy rehab. I'm too busy. I don't want to do that, but I can match them up with one of my, with one of my borrowers say, Oh, it's a heavy rehab. Oh yeah. Call so-and-so over here. He'll buy it from you if the numbers work and then he'll call me up for the funding and that way I don't have to be in the middle. You guys can work out your deal and I'll just fund it. Hmm. That's brilliant. And then essentially your funding comes from people that you know that want to invest money in the deals that you're, you're, you're connecting with people. Yeah. They expand out what I have available because mm -hmm. you know, I'm one guy, I've only got this one pool of money that's mm -hmm. mine and you know, every, everybody always wants more money than what you have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I'm able to expand that out by helping other people who don't have the time or the experience or just simply don't want to be on that front end. Um, one of the first guys that approached me about that, he literally says, I am tired of these knucklehead wannabes calling me on a Friday night at 10 PM. Want to talking about borrowing money because they've heard I'm a private lender. Mm -hmm. I don't want anybody to know I'm a private lender. You be the front end for me. You take care of it. You know what you're doing. I just want to get the note on the backside and collect the interest in my IRA. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was kind of the Genesis for, you know, how we ended up, using the model that we use now was just that one frustrated real estate investor rea member. Mm -hmm. And because some knucklehead called him on a Friday night at 10 PM and uh -huh. wanted to talk about a loan. That's so cool. And then it's evolved in this whole business. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really wanted to highlight something you said too. You said when you find a good deal, all you have to do is look at your hard money borrower list and look at the person that hasn't borrowed in a while. And that person is a very likely buyer. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just think that's such a brilliant strategy. I, I'm just kudos to you. Um, you're the first person I've heard that's doing that. So, I mean, it's just, it's unique and it's just, it's, it's very creative. Well, it's, it's nice that, you know, we're small enough that I know all my borrowers. I know their stories. I know their experience level. I know what they've done right, what they've done wrong, what they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. So it makes it pretty easy for me to take, see a deal coming through that I don't want and say, oh, this is perfect for, um, give this to Tim. Tim mm -hmm. will take that one. He's ready. His projects, you know, he's about done. I just did his last draw for him on that one. He's looking for another one. Cool is that? How cool, Tim, would it be to have a Darren in your market? Right. Here's That's a deal. <laughs> I'll fund it for you. You just do the work or manage the crew. Like, I think we need a Darren in every market. Yeah, I was about to say, I would love to have a Darren. And I do that for my... And I do that for my wholesale deals. When I go buy, you know, so when I have a seller calls me directly and I like the deal and I buy it and I go sell it as a wholesale deal, I offer financing with it. Why wouldn't I? Here's this property. You can buy it from me for $70,000. It needs 15 in rehab. The ARV is 190. Oh, by the way, for 20 grand down, I'll finance all everything else for you. Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. Basically, anybody handy with any sense of how to calculate the numbers, which it sounds like you're even halfway willing to teach them, anybody with some construction skills at all could build a really great investing business in your area. Um, they can build a really great great investing business in almost any area. Well, for sure. I'm, there's additional challenges depending on the state mm -hmm. you're in. Mm -hmm. You know, California keeps trying to do crazy stuff, and Illinois is you know a little bit further behind California. So, but uh, you can build a good real estate investing business about finding that network and that team to work with. Yeah. 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 I just want to highlight how, how unique what you do is for your investors, like to, to find the deal for them, fund it for them. That's, that's a tremendous, tremendous value. And it, it helps them out. Yeah. Yeah. Your ability to create a win-win scenario there. And oftentimes it'll probably be win, win, win. Cause I'm sure the seller's winning at some level too. It, it's just tremendous. Like the more win wins you could create, it's just, um, what was that? The other guy said like any relationship you have is a two way street, right? So like if you feed somebody else and they feed you, your, your businesses grow collaboratively and they could be parallel, not necessarily perpendicular. Right. So I just think it's awesome that everything that you're doing. Right. And that's, that's the whole idea is that, you know, if we help everybody, everybody does mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't do it for them, but I can help them along the path. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool, Darren. So um, what are you currently working on building up? Are you building anything currently? Or are you kind of um, in flux right now? Give me an idea what your, your, your vision is for the next 12 months. So what I've done is because the, as I shifted away from being like focused primarily on wholesaling and flipping to focusing as the active part of the business being lending. Now, granted, I've never stopped being a landlord. I'm still picking up rental properties. The lending business has grown very, very quickly. And so one of the things I don't have in place yet is a lot of, a lot of automations and a lot of systems and processes and things like that to help things run. So they run smoothly all the time and run as efficiently as they can. 
So that's really my focus over the next six to eight months is I've started along that process about six months ago and about halfway through is just making everything as automated as reasonable, making it simple to use, easy to follow, and trying to make it as simple for the borrowers and the note buyers and the people working here, everybody else to make it a very smooth functioning machine. So right now it's about systematizing what I'm already doing and documenting it. So that's my current focus. And then after that, I'm going to take a little break, slow down a little bit for a week or two, maybe take a week off. Right. That's always good. Yeah. And then we'll kind of focus on the rest of it from there. Um, see where the market goes, see what happens, you know, cause there's some killer deals. Maybe I'll buy another batch of houses again too. <laughs> that's fun. That's one thing that I've really enjoyed about wholesaling and using direct mail in different ways to get properties is that there's a lot of times where you get onesie twosies, but there's a lot of times where you'll pull a portfolio of 10 or 20 at a shot, which is really, really fun. Yeah. And it's fun to you know, put that deal together, help a seller out, you know, that wants to move a pro move it quickly. You know, cause every time I look at one where I'm talking direct to the seller, I look I was like, listen, you could list it and get X mm -hmm. roughly. Mm -hmm. Or I can buy it from you cash and you're going to get Y, which is lower than X, but it's fast, it's easy, and as long as title's clear, we can close it next week. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, my wife's a broker. If you want to list it, you can, mm -hmm. you know, we'll have her do that for you. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Give them all the options. Right. I'm very straight up for them. You know? mm -hmm. But you know, the good thing, though, is like for me as a wholesaler, I'm always closing on every deal. So I'm not worried about having to assign contracts or deals falling through. So I can talk directly to people and make the promise. Yeah, no, nope, here you go. I'm going to give you X dollars for this property. We can close today's Friday. As long as title's clear, we can close next Friday. If that works for you, if you need a little longer, we can go a little longer. No problem. Hmm. You know, I signed up the last one I wholesaled. I signed the purchase agreement right around Christmas time, somewhere over that Christmas break time frame, with a closing date of March 30th. So three months because that's what the seller needed. Exactly. Yeah. Now it worked out in my favor because in three months, the property value yeah. went up. <laughs> so it's a good time to hold for three months. So it didn't hurt my feelings much, <laughs> but I did that solely to help the seller because that's what he needed. Yeah. You now he had some family stuff to take care of. There was a family member in there that had some obligations. They had to get them moved and, you know, all kinds of other things that had to happen. And he was comfortable just making sure that he just wanted the deal done. It wanted it locked up, knowing that someone would close on it and not have to worry about things. And that's kind of what I gave him. Here is this. Here's your simple answer. When do you want to close it? March 30th. Okay, March 30th it is. And so that's what we did. And we've done that for other people too, where we've done, uh, we bought one where the agreement was she would sell us the house at X, but she wasn't going to move out until she had found the house she wanted to move into because she was living there. So we had it under contract for, I don't know, two to four months. I don't remember exactly how long while she went out and found the place she wanted to live and closed on that one. And then we closed them both on the same day so that she could use the money from the house sale as a down payment on a new purchase. Yeah. Super cool. You know, it's, I guess it's kind of the advantage of being the lender. I don't have to, you know, I'm automatically yeah. <laughs> no hoops to jump through. It just makes life so much more simple. Yeah. Yep. I'm automatically approved as yeah. long as the deal works. As long as I want the deal. Right. As long as the deal works, I'm approved. Yeah. 
Very cool. Darren, so obviously you have a ton to offer people, in specific, anybody near you. Um, so if our audience wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to reach out? Um, they can ping me through the, the website's got emails and phone numbers on there. Um, it's DaytonCapitalPartners.com. And if they're in the area, too, we host a meetup in Fairborn every month. That It's free. It's just a meetup. Now, I say just a meetup, but it's like mm -hmm. 60 people, you know, all real estate investors getting together. And it's a good way to start building your yeah. network and start getting people around you. Um, we affectionately call our meetup the real uh -huh. estate support group. Because, you know, some days you're going in there, you really need a little bit of support, some some friends, you know, backing up that, hey, this is really working. You're really going the right direction. And, yes, that's a speed bump. And, you know, we've been there, done that. You know, so it's really good to have those people around you that are, you know, helping you through those little trouble patches. And, you know, then patting you on the back when something goes well, too. You know, it's always great to hear somebody else, hey, guess what? I did this great deal. Mm -hmm. You know, so that part's fun, too. So, but yeah, um, hit me on the, hit me through the website. Uh, the phone number is 937-458-3303. Um, website's got the phone number, it's got emails, everything else. So that's an easy way to do it. Beautiful. So I'm trying to make mm -hmm. it easy. All right. Absolutely fantastic. So anybody listening, obviously you know how to get in touch with Darren though. Yeah. And, and I think it's pretty cool because you have these couple different avenues where essentially people can lend with you. They can buy from you. They can do all these different paths. So, I mean, it's just, obviously it's great to reach out. So, I mean, people that have extra money that they want to get placed and, and then people that are looking for deals. And do you facilitate lending in other areas or just the lending is only in your area too? So technically I can lend in 39 or 40 different states mm -hmm. like that. Um, most of what we do is call it within about three hours of the Dayton area. Primarily because that's where everybody is that I know. So that's my network. Um, but we've closed deals in Georgia, Florida, Tennessee. Uh, we've got, we're growing a real estate rental program through a network. So that's going out there. Um, that's probably, probably within six months, that'll be nationwide. Right now it's just in several states. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. So really trying to focus on being that source, at least, especially on the funding sides, like here, if you need a real estate investor loan, go here. We've got the hard money. We've got private, you know, through private funds, you can get a DSCR loan. You can get a Fannie Freddie loan if you want to go that route. But you've got one person who look at you and your deal and say, Hey, based on what your profile is based on you, you have this experience, this credit score, this down payment, here's the best source of funds for you and your deal. And try to match them up with that right, right Avenue as we drive them down there rather than just, you know, having one box that everybody, either you fit in the box or you don't. Absolutely. That makes sense. I mean, it take, it's a more strategic approach. So, so um, Darren Carey, we want to sincerely thank you for coming on our show and giving us a glimpse of your life and your business and everyone else out there chasing freedom. Freedom is acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, just write down one action that you got from today. And if you're in the Ohio area or any of the other states you just mentioned, you might want to reach out to him about private lending because he sounds like he has some pretty awesome programs. Um, make sure to implement it in the next seven days and share it with somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you again for tuning in today's episode and we'll catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. 
Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 